Thessalonians this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's turn in our Bibles there. Um, we'll see in a second on the PowerPoint slide that it says 1 Thessalonians 2, but we are actually in the second epistle of Thessalonians. So uh, this morning I want to talk about something that if you're attentive to the media, if you're attentive to different voices around on TV or internet or otherwise, you'll hear people always saying over and over again that we need to be striking a balance but we need to be balanced in our lives. Even in political arenas, you'll hear about being fair and balanced. We need to be balanced. Uh, it, we need to be balanced in every way possible or imaginable, right? We need to be balanced in our diets. We need to be balanced eating a well-balanced meal, right? I don't know what the enemy is anymore in food. Is it okay to drink milk now? I'm not sure. What, what decade is it? You know, are, are fats good or not? Are carbs the enemy? Are they going to destroy my life? Uh, am I supposed to put myself into ketosis to lose more? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think that there are many things that we need to be balanced about. And there are all kinds of balancing acts that are going on. People talk about balance and exercise. You know, is it okay to exercise every day or should it be every three days? Should we let our muscles recover, right? I'm still in a state of recovery, right? I've been in recovery for far too long. Academic extremes are, are talked about. You know, which school should you go to? Which, which schools should you shoot for? What will be enough and what um, is too much? I'm not sure. But there's always a call for balance. Even in spiritual things or even in religion, there's a call for balance. Uh, there was a call for piety in the early church um, days where a lot of people ran away and became monks in monasteries, right? And they were saying, it's all about prayer and meditation. But then on the other extreme, you have people that say, look, who cares about solitude? You need to be out pounding pavement, giving gospel tracts out to everybody. And if you're not doing that, then you're missing out on the Christian life. But there's got to be balance that's struck. Now, speaking of extremes and a need for balance, who remembers the whole Y2K bug phenomenon that happened, 1999 going to 2000. I couldn't resist. I, I'm thinking about the end times, and that just became a memory that wouldn't go away. And, uh, you know, in 1999, everybody thought this is going to possibly lock up the system worldwide, right? Everything's on a double-digit system in computers, and it's 1999, and when you roll over to 2000, everything's going to go system shutdown and delete or something. So companies and businesses sunk millions of dollars and man hours into fixing and rectifying, you know, possible chaos and societal confusion and riots that were going to take place. And so in uh, Little Rock, my wife and I were sitting there with our 17-inch, you know, color TV with rabbit ears, and we were watching for this thing to happen, right? We are kind of wondering, you know, is anything going to happen at all? Is this a bit of overkill? And in New Zealand and Japan, as the new year took place and we're kind of going around the globe, nothing happened. It was a big nothing, right? I mean, just nothing. And you went to Europe and we came over and really, not, I mean, if something happened, let me know. But I don't think anything happened. I think it was overstated a bit, just a bit. And it's an example of uh, people overreacting and needing to be in balance. Even I remember people were going out, heading to the hills, and they were stockpiling and creating homes with gun turrets where they, you know, would be able to ward off the enemy. And they were buying out veterinarian portions of medicine and food. Nothing happened. A big zero. But, you know, we're here a few years later and a little bit wiser that 
perhaps we shouldn't have overreacted. Well, this church needed to be brought back center and it needed to be put into balance. They were shaken up. Verse 2, as we looked at last week and week before of 2 Thessalonians, talks about how false teachers had shown up. They'd given them some wrong teaching about the end times and about the rapture, perhaps saying that they had missed the rapture that, or that Jesus wasn't going to come and gather them after all. And that though they were being afflicted, you know, that God didn't care about them anymore and, and that Satan, the Antichrist, perhaps had taken over and they were suffering under Satan's destroying influences. And so what Paul did is he said, look, I want to bring you back center on these things and let you know that God is in control of all of what's going on. And he brought him back center by saying, listen, the Antichrist, and we learned this last week, the Antichrist is under God's timetable. I mean, the verse four where it talks about the abomination desolation, that's not going to happen until God designs for it to happen. And And by the way, the Holy Spirit is restraining him now, verse 6, and holding back the Antichrist. Even though there's some influence, there's a controlled influence that God has over him at this time. And then, ultimately, Jesus wins in the end, as these verses of verse 8 and verse 9 talk about. Satan, the Antichrist, uh, or Satan's figure, the Antichrist, is going to be destroyed in the end. After he's revealed, he'll be killed with Jesus' breath. Jesus will just speak and Antichrist will die. And so Paul's bringing the church back center, saying, hey, you're kind of shaken apart. You're kind of alarmed. You're, you're having an earthquake in your heart. But you know what? The devil is God's devil and God is in charge of that. Now, That leads us into verses 9 through 12, where Paul begins to talk about what's going to happen to people who are duped by Satan. They're they're going to fall into the trap of believing the Antichrist is really the Christ, and they're going to see false signs and wonders. They're going to come under a deluding deception, a wicked deception from Satan, and then they're going to refuse to believe the truth. They're going to reject God's word, and they're going to love themselves more than the truth. And then what's God going to do? God is ultimately going to send a strong delusion on them that they may believe what is false and they're going to be condemned. And so they're going to be duped by Satan. They're going to be deceived in their own hearts and they're going to believe what's not true. And then ultimately God's going to say, listen, if you reject the truth of God's word, then I'm ultimately going to put a final condemning judgment upon you. And I think what Paul is doing here as we go into verses 13 through 17 is he's being an effective and skillful pastor. Because you know what he's doing? He's saying, listen, I just brought you back center by saying that the affliction that you're undergoing is not satanic and it's not out of God's control. God is controlling all of that. And so you can be comforted there, but there are people who are going to reject God and they're going to reject Christ and they're going to be condemned. But you know what? I want to make sure of one thing. I want you to know that that's not you. That's not you. It's so easy, I think, sometimes when you you fly up 30,000 feet and you hear these incredible truths about the end times, and then you begin to hear about what's going to happen to unbelievers and how they're going to be sent to hell and how they're going to be condemned even by God because they rejected God. It's so easy to begin to to kind of spiral yourself down and say, is that me? Am I someone who's under judgment or am I under grace? And Paul wants to make very certain, very quickly, that this church knows, you know what? 
I've just given you this helicopter picture to comfort you, this helicopter up picture to comfort you about what's going to happen in the end. But I want to make sure of one thing. You need to know that you are under grace. And grace brings you into balance. Grace is the only thing that can bring us into balance when we're going through things. This morning I woke up, for instance, and the very first thoughts that entered into my mind were negative, were, were sort of negative things that are going on in my life, just, just plaguing me. I know this is something that only happens to me and you know nothing of, right? But in the morning, sometimes thoughts will creep in that just are not positive. They're, they're just nagging issues in my life. But you know what I did? I thought about the gospel instead. I said, I'm not going to think about these things. I'm going to think about Christ and the gospel and what I'm going to say this morning. And that is that I'm under grace and we're under grace. And it changed my morning and it flipped it on its head. And I was excited and I was encouraged. And all of a sudden, the, the negative things in my life faded to the background. And they were controlled by grace. And Paul wants this church to be brought back center again. Hey, don't, don't think that you're the condemned people. Don't think that you're under the deluding influence of Satan. You're not. The affliction that's taking place, it's, it's under God's watch. You're not under God's judgment, and you're not being beaten up by the devil, and you're not the condemned. You're under grace. And that's what verses 13 through 17 are all about. This passage I, I've kind of put under this title, Three Ways Grace Changes Everything. Three ways grace changes everything. And I borrowed that idea from a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. Tim Keller. He's one of the um, pastors of the fastest growing church movement in New York City. And he loves to talk about grace and how grace changes everything. And it does. It does. This church wasn't Satan terrorized or God condemned, and they needed to hear that in gospel language. And this paragraph, verses 13 through 17, is a gospel-rich paragraph. It surprised me. I mean, I've read 2 Thessalonians before, but not in this manner of detail. And this paragraph here, it could be something right out of Romans chapter 8. It is rich theologically, and it blew my mind. And it's all about grace. And it's all about the gospel that's applied to us. Grace changes everything in three ways. First of all, it changes or it should change the way that we think about our past. The way that we think about our past. First of all, we are not condemned. We are loved. We're not condemned. We are loved. We're not, verse 12, condemned But instead, we are, verse 13, brothers beloved by the Lord. Let me read verse 13. But we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Let's stop there. One of the most precious doctrines in all of the scripture that is a manifest explanation of God's love to you is the doctrine of election. It's that God chose you. I know that kind of introduces all kinds of debates and discussions and, 
you know, kind of walks around the spiritual theological neighborhood. But don't let it this morning. Don't miss God's love letter to you right now. He has loved you personally. Personally. Look at this. Look at verse 13 again. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're having prayer meetings in Corinth, writing this church back and saying, we're always giving thanks to you. We love you. We were so thrilled about you and encouraged about you. Why? Because we know that your brothers who are beloved by God, God has set his personal affection upon you. Just let it sink in. Let that hit you for a moment. Please, God loves you. He knows you by name. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows what you did yesterday, last week, last year. He knows where you're going in life. He made you in his image. And he decided out of all of the creation of humanity to set his individual love upon you. Zephaniah speaks of how God sings over Israel, and I think that applies to us in the church. He sings over you. He rejoices over you. He loves you. And Paul was not saying, I'm praying and thanking God always because I love you so much. He's saying, I'm thanking God for you always because I know that you're beloved by God. He loves you, and that's why I'm so excited to pray about that. That's what he was saying. And the expression of that is that God chose them. Look at the next phrase, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Chosen. You know, as I think about that word, I used to kind of try to struggle with it. How does God love the entire world and yet choose some to love even more? And it's kind of a mystery, but it also is a doctrine that puts God in complete control of his love. God's love is unlimited in extent. He loves the whole world, but it's limited in degree. It's focused, it's laser-like, and it's, and it's stronger upon his children. Now, we don't have a problem with that when we talk about Old Testament Israel, right? We go, oh, well, that, you know, all those pagan nations that were lost, that were wrapped up in idolatry and false worship, and then God chose Israel. And he chose those people. Well, it's the same concept brought forward to the New Testament church. We are an international nation of every tribe, tongue, people, and language. All collected as God's holy people. And in 1 Peter it says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and what? A people of God's own possession. All that language is Old Testament language about Israel, but it's applied to you. You're that. He loves you that way. He loves you personally and he loves you especially. He loves you especially. You're chosen. Deuteronomy 7, you might turn over there, verses 6 through 7. This is love language to Israel. And he says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has, here it is, chosen you to be a people for his, watch this, treasured Possession Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, all peoples. The Lord set his love on them and chose them. This isn't some sort of stoic, mindless, headless sort of you know, great computer in the sky saying, I am now going to elect these people unemotionally. No, this is God 
um, in the face of a creation that is rebelling against him, that has sinned against him, that has rejected his general call and general love, and in the mystery and majesty of God's infinite and rich plan where he chose the nation of Israel and lavished his love upon them. And then this is echoed again in the New Testament for his church. Ephesians 1.4 takes up the same language. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So when you hear about people being chosen to be in the body of Christ or election or those words, first and foremost, please think about these phrases in terms in terms of God's love for you. It's personal love and it's a special love. It's deep love. First Thessalonians 1 4. This is how he talked, Paul talked about them in his first epistle. For we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. You know, another um, sort of stereotype that needs to be broken is about John Calvin. John Calvin was a, a very loving pastor, um, first and foremost. He was a theologian and he wrote a lot and did a lot, but he was, he was very much a loving pastor. And from this text, he said, there is no danger that Satan should reverse their salvation. So he's saying, look, this gospel language is saying that Satan will not destroy this church, even though they thought he was going to be able to do that. Paul says he chose them to be first fruits. What does that mean? You know what that means? That's, you know, agriculture language where basically you have a ripe crop. You have, you have the ripest part of the bounty. And that, the idea is that God as this farmer is taking out the ripest crop, the best crop, the crop that he wants to harvest. And that is his own choosing. And that group of people are the ones that are to be saved, it says in verse 13. Saved from what? Saved from all the doomsday that's described in chapter 1 about Christ's return and the wrath of God and him coming with fiery angels. Paul's saying you're not going to endure that wrath and that suffering. You're not doomed to an eternity of hell and you're not doomed as Satan is and those are who do not believe. The doom is not for you. You're saved, and you're saved through sanctification. Look at verse 13. Again, this is just packed with Bible words talking about salvation. Sanctification by the Spirit. You know what that word sanctification means? It means to be set apart. To be set apart. It's the word hagiadzo. It means to be wholly set apart. At salvation, you were set apart. The moment you were saved, the moment God interrupted your life with grace, you were sanctified. You were set apart. Paul in Galatians 1 talked about him being set apart to be an apostle as that role. Well, you were set apart to be a Christian. He made a a division between the world's effects and our sin and us. And we were set apart as a holy people. You might say, but I kept sinning. Yeah, you maybe kept sinning and God promised to progressively sanctify you in this life. But at salvation, at that moment, you were distinguished from your sin in his mind. You were set apart and you were guaranteed, signed, sealed and delivered heaven. 
So in one sense, you are sanctified at salvation. And then in another sense, you're being sanctified. And this is your Christian growth because you were sanctified. You're being sanctified. And then ultimately, you will be finally set apart from sin. Glory to God. Hallelujah in heaven, right? Full sanctification. You know, it reminds me of this picture of the Christian life. We're set apart from our sin at salvation. Sin is dethroned in our lives. But we have to progress and grow in grace throughout our Christian lives. And Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. A picture of that is something that a pastor told me recently where it's as if we're going up a down escalator. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're trying to, to go, go cross-grain with the downward momentum. And if we stop trying to grow in the Christian life, what's going to happen? We're going to go backwards. And so, because we are set apart initially, that is the impetus and the motivation to continue to progress in the Christian life till ultimately God will finally bring us into glory in heaven. This comes through believing. You say, you know, salvation is all of what God does. That's right. But you know what? Even though God is the one and the only one who saves you and saved us, it comes through believing in the truth. Now, believing in the truth does not save us, but God uses it somehow in his plan along the way. It's an instrumental believing. In other words, he works through it. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved, what? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, through faith. So there is an expression of faith. God wakens us up. He awakens us. He transforms our hearts. He, he enlivens you at salvation. And then all of a sudden you find yourself believing. Do you remember that? Maybe it was when you were in college or high school or junior high or, or young adulthood or, or maybe recently in your life you were sitting and just reading the Bible and the Bible words turned from something that was more like a history book or a book that you were trying to debate or joust with and all of a sudden the Bible words became life to you and they popped off the page and all of a sudden they became convictions to your soul and you said, you know what, I'd stake my life on these truths. Is it because I'm smarter than all the intellectuals that would try to refute the Bible? No. Did you outsmart all the, the sort of naysayers of the Bible and say, no, you know, I figured it out historically. I got this covered, got nailed. You know, I'm, I'm good. I believe it now. No. You believe the Bible because God made you believe it. He opened your heart to believe the truth. And all of a sudden, the words were the words of life. It was bread and meat to you. And Jesus is alive and you gave your life to him. That's the beauty and joy of believing in the truth. And God uses that as he saves us. You know, I always say that if I really had anything to do with my salvation at all in the first place, I would have screwed it up. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, if I really did anything to get myself saved, I would have contaminated the whole process. So God keeps us out of it in that sense but enjoins us to the process instrumentally and allows us to place our complete reliance and trust upon him almost as a response to what he's first done in our hearts. And that gives him glory. It gives him glory for us to exercise faith, to, to fall upon him for salvation. All right, verse 14 goes on to, to say that, you know, God, he didn't condemn us, he loved us, 
and he didn't pass us over. He called us. Look at verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel. Let's stop there. What does the word calling mean? In the scripture, you have God's general call to the whole world to be saved. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon your back, for my yoke is easy and what? My burden is light. You know, come to me, all of you. He he cried over the nation of Israel, saying, I would have gathered you to myself, as a mother hen does her chicks. He he wept over God's um, world, over the world that Jesus himself had created. That's the general call and the general love for the world. And that's real and that's biblical. But this is talking about something distinct from that. This is the effectual calling of God. This is where God, as in terms of a divine summons, it's where he summons your heart to salvation. This is the doctrine of irresistible grace. It's where God draws you to himself, and it's irresistible. Now, you might, in your flesh and your mind and in your testimony, remember sort of kicking and screaming against God. Maybe maybe some of you said, you know, I don't really want to leave this relationship that I have with this guy or gal to follow Christ. I still want that sin. I still want that party lifestyle. I I still want this crowd. But but you know, there's something more here in Christ. And I I even remember that from my own testimony in high school. I remember, you know, still being invited to things. And and I, I was a new believer. But you know what? God had drawn me to himself. And so I wasn't going back. I wasn't going back. He was better. He was more satisfying. I had, I had tasted of grace, and grace was better than what the world could offer me. That's what happened in my heart. And so all of a sudden, worldly things became less tasteful. They, they weren't going to satisfy. And you know what? They didn't satisfy anyway. They were temporary pick-me-ups, right? But Christ, he, he sustains and feeds your soul and satisfies you, and he's more than enough. And that's part of the, the fruit of the fact that he called you. It was irresistible. He locks the tractor beam on your heart and there's no escape. You can't get out of it. The word in uh, if, uh, John chapter 6, 44 is uh, a word that Jesus used regarding this effectual call. And Jesus said, all to those who I draw will, will not be cast out. All of those who I draw, I will have. And the idea there is the same concept that was used where Jesus was dragging the cross up to Golgotha. That word draw, all that I draw, is the same word for Jesus dragging the cross up to Golgotha. So even if you were dragged, kicking and screaming, you were coming no matter what. There was no getting out of it. That's what God did for you. He called you through the gospel. So that you may obtain, verse 14 says, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is glory that we taste now, and it's glory that we will ultimately experience in heaven. He didn't pass over you in your sin. He didn't just say, you know, I'm not going to worry about you. I'm going to let you go. Instead, he made a decision and drew you to himself. That's what he did. That's how we should think about our past. Our past, your past, is rewritten history. You might have one version of your past where you thought, you know, I was born here in 19 such and such, and I was raised by these people, and I did these things. 
But when your life is interrupted by grace, all of a sudden your, your past history changes to, you know what, God made me, he, he loved me, in his mind it was always planned that he was going to save me, and then he did all these things for me by his grace. He, he, he saved me, I was his first fruits, he harvested me, and that's what happened, and, and that's the new story that lays on your past. Is that true for you? I mean, that's how grace uploads And so when things plague your heart in the morning, remember that grace changed your past. All of a sudden, it's expanding back to eternity past, and you've got a new history book for your name. Well, that's how grace changes our past. How does it change our present? It changes our present. Look at verse 15 in this way. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Stop there. Your present is changed. Why? Because your present goals now are spiritual. And the spiritual goals are lined out in two verbs, stand and hold. You're to stand firm first and foremost. Now, I think a lot of times we think of the Christian life in terms of things we're doing or not doing, things we're not getting done. Hey, I'm not teaching that Sunday school class. I'm not, haven't signed up here yet. I haven't given money here yet. I haven't done that. Woe is me, you know. And that's how you sort of define the Christian life. I haven't talked to that person yet. I haven't shared Christ with that person yet. You know, and, and that's not what Paul is doing here. That's not how he's defining the Christian life. He's saying the Christian life is about perseverance and standing up in tough times. And we all want to do that, right? If, if the gospel can help you stand and withstand whatever you're going through this week, doesn't that sound good to you? That's what Paul is talking about. That's natural and normal Christianity. Ephesians 6.11 talks about how we wrestle not against flesh and blood, or we wrestle against principalities, and the devil is behind the scenes trying to mess us up and screw up our thinking. But the call in Ephesians 6 is to put on the armor of God so that we will stand in the evil day. Sometimes Christianity is just about putting it in gear and driving. Just keeping going. Just abiding in the vine, John 15. Just hanging on to Jesus and not forsaking truth. When your life is brought to sort of its its end state where you're going, man, I'm going to break apart. I'm like these Thessalonians. I'm about ready to have a nervous breakdown. I'm about ready to throw in the towel. You need to remember these words. The gospel is there to empower you in the present day to stand. Ephesians 6 talks about having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Those shoes that you have and you put on as the armor of God are spiked cleats, shoes that that help you dig into the sod and turf. When life's onslaughts are hitting you, you're not going to forsake the faith. You're not going to become a skeptic. You're not going to become a cynic. You're not going to start to argue against the Bible in your mind. You're not going to be a God-hater. You're ultimately going to come back around and say, you know what? No, I'm going to stand. I'm going to stick it out. Why? Because God saved me. This is what it all comes down to. Standing. And then holding on to the traditions. Now, the word traditions immediately, just by speaking the word, brings baggage into the room. You go, traditions, you know, give me the gospel. Give me the word, right? Don't give me traditions. But traditions in the Bible are defined in terms of things that Pharisees brought into Christianity, right? 
but traditions are also defined as the gospel itself in the Bible. Um, in terms of how traditions is used negatively, the Pharisees, um, they taught more things than the law of God um, as ways for you to legalistically think you're better off and more spiritual. Mark 7 is, gives one of those traditions where the Pharisees and the Jews, they didn't eat unless they had first washed their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. You know, if I made that rule in my household, none of us would eat any time ever. We all had to wash our hands first. Literally, I mean, it's just chaos, and uh, you know. But we're building up our immune systems. We are, you know. You got to eat a pound of dirt to survive later on. Um, at least that's what I say. I'm amazed at what I'll put in my mouth these days. But it's all survival. But this legalism would have destroyed us all from the beginning. Colossians two eight it talks about not being taken captive by philosophies or human tradition, which is not according to Christ. There are human traditions that can cloud our judgment, that that's, that's not what Paul was talking about. He was talking about traditions being, and you can see it in verse 15, that were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. The traditions are either First Thessalonians, that first letter, or what Paul, Silas, and Timothy taught the church when they were with them for those three years, preparing the church, winning the church to Christ, grounding the church. And he's saying, look... I know it's tough. It's three months since we've left you and, you know, we're not there now as missionaries to support you. But we're writing back to you to say, stand up, stay strong, don't throw in the towel and cling to the gospel. Cling to these truths. This will get you through. And I don't want you to be persuaded to think that, you know, their afflictions were so bad that I can't even relate to that. The afflictions might be more severe on this church at this time, but the principles are the same. How do you get through the difficult afflictions? How do you get through people dying around you or people who are rejecting you or people who are being mean to you or people who are, who are maligning your character? I've heard of these things, right, in the counseling room here. I know that you're going through a lot. How do you get through? you got to go back to the gospel. Not just the gospel that saved you, but the gospel that's getting you through in the present. Okay? You, you stand and you hold on to the traditions. Jude chapter 3 says that the church was contending earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to them. Contend for it. It means fight for the faith. Fight for the truth. And you know what? You know where you need to fight? You know where the battleground is? It's in your mind. It's not just verbally fighting and jousting with people. It's in your mind saying, no, this is the truth. I'm coming back center. I'm being brought back into balanced thinking, right? That's what this is about. They were breaking apart, and this was the counsel to keep them on level ground. Well, Paul's so filled up with the gospel that he can't help but kind of do a mid-course benediction in his letter. He has to sort of just emote at this point. He does this when he writes. You know, this sort of unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God type, type stuff. Or in Romans, you know, from him, to him, and through him are all things to be the glory of God. I mean, he just can't contain himself. Ephesians, he talks about the height, depth, length, and breadth, and to know the love of God. It's like, what are you doing? Well, he's just writing along. I really want to help them. Okay, I'll write. They're chosen. They're first fruits. And, oh, you know, sanctification. They're growing in grace. They were originally set apart. They believe. Oh, oh, and then he writes this. And he's going, 
oh, phew, i got to still write another chapter to them, you know. But that's what verses 16 and 17 is. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God our, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That's a benediction. Can't contain himself. And he wants to talk about how grace changes how you think about your future. Grace changes how we think about our past. It's rewritten that way. It changes how we think about our present. And then it also changes how we think about our future. We think eternally. And we think in terms of God's comfort that he's given us for eternity. Look at verse 16. Paul was a monotheist. He believed in the one true God. He said, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. Stop there. It's talking about Jesus as one member of the Trinity and God the Father as another member of the Trinity, all in one breath. One true God, the God who is himself, the one who has loved us. The love there is expressed through God who is love, but it's the ultimate expression comes from the Father in the act of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the way that Paul wants to upload the idea of eternal comfort is through the cross. How did God eternally comfort you? I love that word comfort. It's the word parakaleo. It's the idea of being called alongside of you. How was it called alongside of you? In the gospel. How are you going to make it through? The gospel. He's called alongside you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's with you. God is with you. Okay? personally, especially in a loving relationship with you. These aren't just ethereal theological categories. This is found in a person who has come alongside you, who's in it with you. He's in the affliction with you. You're watching things rip apart around you, but he's with you in it, with you eternally. That commitment starts with an eternal concept and is brought personally in verse 17. He says, this eternal comfort... And then he goes to verse 17, comforts your hearts and establishes you in every good work and word. It's a big picture idea. It's for all of eternity, but it's brought into the day to day from verse 16 to verse 17. This is what gets us on mission in the Christian life. Yes, we're supposed to stand up and stand firm and hold on to traditions. But then out of that flows the works of Christian living, grace motivated living because God has established us and promised to be with us and comfort us through thick and thin. All right, let's bring this even more personally with a few thoughts. A few thoughts. Grace is past, present, and future to you. So number one, in terms of the past, replace what discourages you most about your past. All your haunts, all your disappointments, all your bad choices— all the things that you wish you wouldn't have done, replace that history with your rewritten story. Say, how do I do that? Well, meditate on the gospel and lay that, lay these verses over top of your life. And yeah, you've done some things that are scars and memories and they're there and that's okay, but, but lay gospel truth over top of them. You've got to. That's how you bring sort of equilibrium to your soul. And you see that 
you see your life through the lens of God-centeredness and, and Christ's intervention into your life. And that's what makes it all exciting. That's what makes the bad and ugly part of a greater redemption story with your name on it. Isn't that exciting? Now the bad is just the bad part of the movie that got good because Jesus intervened. And it makes it that much sweeter. It makes heaven taste better. Your history spans back to eternity past now. It breaks through 1972 for me. It breaks through earlier years for you or later ones. Your history was part of God's plan and your history was interrupted by grace. Number two, replace what discourages you most about your past with your rewritten present. You know, you have present struggles, you have past struggles, you have present difficulties, but you have a rewritten mission statement for what you live for from day to day. Now, your life goals changed from fleshly to spiritual, whether you knew it or not. Really what matters is the heart and people's hearts around you. And we're, we're living for spiritual things now and we're empowered to do so. Do you know that? Whereas before you maybe were living by caffeine and, you know, exercise and motivation and motivational talks and energy drinks or whatever, now you're motivated by the power of the Spirit. You can plug into God's power in your life as you rely upon Him. And He'll get you through to be able to fulfill spiritual goals and go after the heart. See there is your present goals are inspired. Now we have the inspired goals um, laid out for us in Scripture, but what I mean by the word inspired is that you can live in an inspired way. You can get excited about your life when you go to work, when you go to the base, when you go to this job site, right? You can get excited because you're seeing beyond just physical um, goals, practical goals to spiritual goals. And they're inspiring. They're exciting. They can be hurtful. They can be difficult. They can be heavy burdens to carry. But God gives you the power to make it through and try to reach these. Number three, replace what discourages you most about your future with your rewritten future. Now, the future hasn't happened yet, but what you lived for before temporarily now is living towards eternity. The end of your story is heaven and Jesus and meeting him. The end of your story isn't, well, retirement and then did this money upload and what happened here and how did that work? I mean, that... Your, your, your mindset changes when it's gospel-centered and you're thinking into eternity, and that's what I'm living for. Future, your future extends beyond your life on earth. Your future is now promised to you. It's set, secure. You have eternal comfort because God has come alongside you, and that's promised yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for this gospel paragraph that perhaps was a surprise to all of us. It's just tough.